Welcome to Metro Charities podcast series on equality. I am Emma Jones, head of Insight at Metro, which gives me the privilege of delving deeper into all the work we do and chatting to colleagues across the charity who deliver services in HIV support, mental health, youth work, sexual and reproductive health services, and a range of community-based projects. Marking the 10-year anniversary of the Equality Act coming into law on the 1st of October 2010, this month we have been reflecting on the significance of the word equality and what it means to us as a charity that started as a lesbian and gay rights group campaigning in the early 1980s. Metro champions equality as part of our central mission. This concept and practice is pivotal to the services we provide in supporting people who have protected characteristics recognised in the Equality Act legislation, including those with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities, deaf and disabled people, and black and ethnic minority service users and women. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking with senior leaders in the charity, both members of our paid staff team, as well as those who contribute voluntarily to realising our commitment to equality and diversity. Please join us in reflecting on the progress and barriers to equality leading up to the 2010 Equality Act legislation and beyond. Hello, my name is Emma Jones from Metro Charity. I'm the head of Insight. I'm joined today by Sue Elsgood from Metro GAD, and this is part of our podcast series reflecting on the Equality Act of 2010. Sue, could you introduce yourself and tell me about your role, please? Yes, hi Emma. Um, my name's Sue Elsgood, and I'm currently co-chair of Metro GAD, which is Greenwich Association of Disabled People, which is part of the Metro family. I'm also a volunteer councillor with Metro. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Sue. And I know, of course, that Metro uh, GAD m- merged with uh, Metro um, fairly recently. and But I understand, of course, that the organisation has a very long history And I was wondering if you could tell me about your um, first involvement with Metro GAD. Yeah, sure. Um, Yes, so Metro Metro GAD merged together in 2019, so only last year. But GAD um, was, was actually founded in 1975. And I was involved from 1989 when I started to become involved with the peer support um, role around independent living. So it was the idea was that experienced personal assistance um, or independent living um, people that were experienced around independent living could support each other so that's how I first started and then I got invited to join the management committee and so from 1990 up till the present day although I had about four years off I've been on the management committee of the charity of GAD and now it's MetroCAD. So I'm still on the committee and now as co-chair. Um, yeah, I got involved because I lived locally and could see that there was um, 
a lot of campaigning that needed to be done around our rights and also um, there was a lack of information and advice so it was really important to be on board the organisation that, that provided information to disabled people. Could You mentioned independent living, Sue. Could you just explain a bit more to people who may not be so familiar with that term and why that's important as part of um, the politics that you're involved with? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so many of us who, who are disabled require assistance to live our day-to-day lives. Um, and it's been quite a battle over the years to get rights around that. So traditionally, it's been families and family carers that have supported disabled people. And then there could also be, um, like, paid care agencies or even residential homes. But there was, um, like, back in the 60s, I would say, the 60s and early 70s was the beginnings in this country of independent living where a group of people in a Cheshire home in Hampshire called the court um, decided that they would try and see if their local authority would provide funding for them to live in the community with support, painful support. And so the independent living movement in, in the UK has grown since then and we've had like centres for independent living like GAD spring up and GAD was the first in in London the first organisation that was run by and for disabled people and then um, so the independent living independent living is extremely um, hard fought for should I say because we had um a lot of pressure, there's a lot of pressure for institutionalisation and we're always fighting to argue that disabled people have better quality of life, can participate more and thrive better if we're living in the community and can be part of it and obviously the community benefits from us as well. Now I was just struck as you were talking about independent living um thinking about your own challenges during COVID-19 personally and uh, how you um, how important equality and support is to you to live independently. I'm just wondering if you could give us some sense of, of what it's been like during COVID-19. Yes. Right, thank you. Yes, so during COVID-19, um, I've been shielding personally and I've still had to rely on a team of personal assistants so although I'm meant to be completely isolating I cannot do so because I require um, support for daily living and personal care so um, really unless the, the team of people that support me are also very careful it's still quite possible to um, to get 
to get the virus, I guess. It's really difficult to shield, absolutely. We've had, um, we've been campaigning with the local council to get appropriate PPE for personal assistance. And although some is provided, it's not quite to the standard that um, the Health England, um, the National Health Service advises when people are using breathing equipment like ventilators, which I use. Um, so that's a battle. The other personal campaigning battle that I've had is with... Um, with the hospital that supplies my ventilator, they stopped providing spares like filters for people using ventilators at home. So it became an equalities issue um, that people using ventilators at home were not being treated as equally as those in hospital to use ventilators. And so I found myself, because it wasn't just me, but it was the whole, all the, all the home patients that attached to the hospital that I use were affected. I got legal advice and wrote, and wrote to the hospital. Well, I wrote, obviously, at first to see if they would supply them, and because they would not, I had to send a pre-action letter and it could have gone to judicial review, but um, I did manage to get the hospital to agree to recommence supplying ventilator spares to those that requested them, but as long as supplies lasted, which was worrying because there was a nationwide shortage and even probably a worldwide shortage because of the pandemic. So it is quite um, frightening when you you do require equipment like that and then there's shortages and when you need more protection from filters, they're actually not going to supply them anymore. So, yeah, it's everything, even to breathe, we have to battle for, it seems, in this life. Thank you, Sue, for sharing all of that. Really appreciate how personal it is for you. And, and thinking about we're in 2020 now and you're talking about the issues that you know, the challenges that you're facing. And you were talking, reflecting back earlier on right into the 1990s. So I just want to sort of rewind back again into that period. What can you give us a sense of what, what it was like in the period for you and peers leading up to the Disability D Discrimination Act and, and can give me a sense of what, what was going on then for you? Right, so back in the 90s, I just left university and um, I realised that I, I managed to, to um, get an independent living flat in the community, but I realised how different my life was going to be to my peers that I'd been with at university and it did actually make me feel very depressed because I couldn't even um, go to the bus stop and catch a bus to go shopping 
um, because back in those days, none of the buses had ramps, and the taxis didn't have ramps either. So if you were not able to transfer out of your wheelchair, you were not able to go further than your wheelchair would take you. And even if you were to go in your wheelchair, there were not the drop curbs. So it was just like, as soon as you reached the end of your pavement, there was a inaccessible step. And that was your, you know, my world shrank. And I realised how small my world was going to be unless I did something about it to change it. And at that time, I hadn't quite recognised the social model to begin with. So I very much felt it was my fault that I couldn't get on a bus. And it was the fact that I couldn't walk. So, you know, that's just the way it was. And then it wasn't until a couple of my friends um, who were disabled and had started to become politically active, invited me on a protest with the campaign for accessible transport that I really, um, I really took on board what it meant, how liberating the social model of disability is. And I think that was really life-changing because I went on the protest they said, oh, come on, Sue, let's let's go and hijack a bus. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, and then it turns out what it meant was blocking the road on Oxford Street, stopping the buses and demanding that the buses be made accessible to all, to all not just uh, non-disabled people. And I say I felt so empowered on that protest because I realised that the bus was public transport and public included disabled people and yet it was a bit like apartheid at that time where only non-disabled people could access the transport and we were just, yeah, there was no way we could get on the bus so... I felt by protesting there was a possibility because we seemed to make quite a big impact. We had loads of TV press coverage. We got arrested. Um, it was yeah, it was the media was really covering it, and we disrupted the traffic quite badly in central London. And I realised that we could through um, peaceful civil disobedience potentially get the bus companies to put lifts and ramps on the buses that was more possible than it was for me to get some kind of uh, treatment or cure for my impairment so um, it felt very empowering and so that was really the beginnings of my involvement with direct action. We then moved on to uh, DAN, which was the Disabled People's Direct Action Network. And being part of that organised, well, that network of activists 
was where we really worked towards um, putting pressure on the government to introduce anti-discriminatory legislation. Do you remember when that was? So when, when the Dan activities started? Yes. Um, so Cat like, was in about... I was involved with Cat, which was campaign for accessible transport in around 1990 and then so I was involved with that for a couple of years and then in 1993 there was a big rights not charity protest outside the London television studios on the South Bank to block the telethon programme so there was this Telethon programme, which was um, a fundraiser, but it used very negative, stereotypical images and language around disabled people. Really, a modern day freak show, expecting disabled people to beg for what they needed. And we were there protesting to say, We want rights, not charity, we need um, these things. Yes, we need, we need, uh, we might need a wheelchair and we might need um, proper finance, but it shouldn't come through charity, it should come through gas of rights. And so um, we had two big protests in 1990 and 1992. On the 1992 telethon protest, we decided we would make um, a list of all the people there and anyone who wanted to formed Dan, the Disabled People's Direct Action Network. And so I was one of the founder, like the first people um, to be involved with that right at the beginnings. And so it was a very exciting time. Um, and we, um, we decided our first action Although our focus was still on accessible public transport, our first action was actually at Christchurch in Dorset, where there was an MP called Robert Hayward who had talked out civil rights legislation. And we had been trying... Well, over the years, there was 15... 15 attempts to get some legislation through Parliament um, to protect our rights as disabled people. And he was one of the MPs who talked out our bill, which meant there wasn't enough time to debate it or for it to be passed. It was kind of a, a sabotaging effort on the part of the uh, government not to introduce the law. So we decided we would target these MPs that were talking out our civil rights legislation. And Robert Hayward, he was disabled himself, ironically. He had MS, but he he wasn't supporting our rights. So we, when there was a by-election, we went to his constituency to make sure or local election, we made sure that all the people in the area knew 
what he'd done, but that he wasn't supporting disabled people. And we leafleted. We went to his um, headquarters, his party headquarters, got to where he was speaking and to the high street. And I don't believe he got voted back in, but um, we did that on several occasions, including with an MP that was local in this borough called Peter Bottomley in Eltham. He had also talked out the bill and um, so we protested in Eltham. Uh, we uh, we marched, marched up the high street, we blocked the buses and we wheeled a, we wheeled a cement mixer to his headquarters because guess what there were steps up there so if you were a disabled constituent you could not go to his surgery so we offered to build him a ramp sounds like an absolutely wonderful period of like you say direct action <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was amazing we also did a 50 mile March, which took us three days for one MP's um, constituency in Southend to Westminster. And and when we got to Westminster, we blocked Westminster Bridge. And it was just in time for the votes on the bill, but it didn't go through. So it was like every time... We, we we were hoping and then it didn't go through not until nineteen ninety five so we got the um DDA passed and it fell far short of what we were hoping for but nevertheless it was groundbreaking. Speaking as you were of the Disability Discrimination Act of nineteen ninety five what changed? You said there it's, it fell short of what your expectations were, but how how did things shift after that for you and your peers? Yeah, well, it was... Um, I think it was a really... It was really significant that we did have a law passed, but it had very many limitations. But it did... For example, it... We called it the we called it the train spotters law because it allowed, it made it illegal not for us not to have access to a railway station, but it did not it did not make it law that you had to be able to get on the train, so the trains could still be inaccessible to us but the station had to be. So we could go along and wave someone goodbye, but we couldn't necessarily on all stations get on the train. That's absolutely hilarious. I was oh. trying not to laugh there. I've never heard that. I've never heard of that before, that it was the train spotters uh, law. That's absolutely, it totally yeah. makes sense. Things not being joined up. So you have one, one yeah. thing sorted out, but actually without it all i mean it seems to tie in actually what you're talking about now it's to me seems to tie in very closely to this concept of co-production um that you've explained to me more about uh, over the last few months 
Just wondering if um, you could say something about where things are at now in terms of inequalities and this issue of, for example, co-production. Yes, so um, disabled people are currently still facing a lot of inequalities, discrimination and challenges. And so one of the things that Metro GAD is um, aiming to do is to um, to set up some authentic co-production with the local council, for example. And this would be so that we have um, we have an equal say from the beginning to the end of all projects, from from the conceptions of the ideas to the delivery, to the reviewing of those ideas and monitoring of the services. So we really want to have more of a say because I think without, you know, we have this saying, nothing about us without us, because without us, um, things would surely not really um, take on board what our what our needs are, what our experiences are, and really meet our requirements. Um, it's it's very important that disabled people are involved. And so we've been working towards that. Um, we've started some co-production meetings. However, it does appear that the concept isn't really been properly understood by the authorities and they've still gone ahead and for example provided a vision that they've already come up with without talking with us about it at all so it's a, it is an uphill battle but I think co-production is a key to improving things for disabled people. I mean, there's still other issues as well, like discrimination and inequalities in employment and every area of life, even still transport. Um, improvements always need to be made. And so we've got a lot of work to do with MetroGAD. So thinking about the legislation after the 1995 period, the Equality Act of 2010 that we're reflecting on this month at Metro and it's one of the reasons obviously we wanted to speak to you and hear more about the work uh, that MetroGAD has been doing and the the, the history of of the organisation. Did anything shift for you and peers and, you know, activist colleagues with 2010 and that that legislation is that a, a yeah so so with the 1995 disability discrimination act we've actually got the 25th anniversary of that this year because there's going to be um there's a lot of interest around that and then after that we had the equalities act 2010 that was introduced which brought together I think it was about 116 different pieces of legislation and policy into one one 
overriding um, document, one overriding law. Um, so the changes that came through from that was that um, I think the DGA protected people against discrimination to some extent around employment, but the Equalities Act is slightly broader than that. So, for example, um, it covers things like shops and services as well, for example. So there's this concept of reasonable adjustments needing to be made where necessary to enable um, disabled people to gain equal access to services and shops and to work and so forth. So, the, yeah, it, and also we used to have the um, Disability Equality Commission and that got disbanded and we now have the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. Thank you, Sue. It's wonderful to have all your um, knowledge. So just to wrap up, I've just got two more questions. And uh, one, if you could just give me a little bit more detail on, on what you do, your voluntary role um, at Metro GAD in terms of the Management Committee. Could you explain what that involves, being a co-chair of Metro GAD? Yes, OK, so I'm co-chair of Metro GAD. For me, involves um, chairing... Chairing the management committee meetings, which happened about four times a year, but much more than that, myself and my fellow management committee members, we share out the roles of representing um, our members um, at many different meetings and conferences, and it's about speaking up for disabled people's rights and campaigning for rights. So, um, for example, we've been campaigning recently over the last year very hard to to stop the council increasing um, social care charges for disabled people in the borough. So we've been working hard on that. Um, we haven't fully succeeded but we we really did put up a good battle and we got media coverage as well for that and we worked alongside some other other organizations um, in that campaign um so i also have been involved with lots of meetings with the council around this pandemic crisis and I really, um, for example, this month I attended a Black Disabled Lives Matters webinar. Um, so obviously disability is something that crosses uh, all other areas of life. Um, yeah, so we... We've been extremely busy. We thought we thought um, for having letters for our personal assistants so that 
During lockdown, they would still be able to travel to work to us and to get their PPE. And um, we've been working with the council, especially in the direct payments department, to ensure that disabled people are supported. Um, for example, around... Um, getting food because many disabled people have been shielded and had problems getting food or food deliveries. So we're working on that and also around um, COVID testing for PAs. Um, yeah, we've been really, really busy. Sounds extraordinary what you've uh, mounted working remotely and communicating remotely. But um, just to sum up, could you say for me two words that for you represent equality? Two words that um, represent equality for me would be liberation and freedom. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sue. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Metro's podcast on equalities. Please join us to continue the conversation online by following us at Metro Charity on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast series on your preferred app. And to find out more about our services, please visit our website, metrocharity.org.uk. Thank you.